0: These are the words of God. In the 3rd year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Verse 6. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, To them, the chief of the eunuch gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Our Lord and God, we pray now that you would open this word to us. Teach us, Lord, about greatness. The greatness you give, the greatness you build in your people, the greatness you hold before us. And may we, O Lord, in Jesus' name, be great. For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I've spent several weeks talking to parents about biblical parenting, but I want to spend the next several messages speaking directly to you teens. And when I say teens, if you're 9 or 10 or 11 or 12... And you can understand what I'm saying. I'm speaking to you as well. But I'm speaking to you, young men and young women. And the one thing, the first thing I want to talk to you about is greatness. Remember Daniel and his three friends? We considered them two weeks ago in our special kingdom message for Oktoberfest. If you were not able to be here for that message, I'd urge you, Go back on the church website and listen to that because so much of what I'm talking about this morning is built on that earlier message. God used Daniel and his three friends to show us how to be agents of his kingdom. Who did God use to show us how to think and pray and act to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness as Jesus commanded He used four teenagers who were carried off to captivity. The very best we can figure, Daniel and his friends were about 18 when they were carried off. So we would say seniors in high school. And the reason why we are so drawn to them as we read their stories going forward is that all along the way we see them Rising above their circumstances. We see them doing hard things. We see them doing heroic things. In other words, we sense greatness in them. And the same is true of other young people, other teenagers, both in and out of Scripture, whose stories we read. Think of Josiah, king of Judea in 2nd Kings chapter 22. Now, he was only eight when he was crowned king, but of course, at that age, he could not actually reign. But he was about 18 when he really began to reign. And the first thing that he did in God's providence was discover the book of the law. It was at least the book of Deuteronomy, which is often called the book of the covenant, in the Old Testament because it's a summary, it's a recounting of God's dealings with Israel and it's kind of a one-stop summary of the law. But it might have been that it was the entire Pentateuch that they found, which shows you the fact that they were so amazed that they made this discovery shows you how neglected God's Word had become at that particular period in time. But Josiah... This teenager's response was immediate faith, immediate obedience, and immediate reformation of all of Israel according to God's word. Again, we see a teenager rising above their circumstances, doing hard things that are right things. We see a teenager being heroic, and we are drawn to them because we see greatness. In history, think of Alfred, king of Wessex, who was the youngest of five brothers, barely out of his teens, when unexpectedly he became king when his older brother was killed in battle. What did young Alfred do? Young Alfred, of whom nobody expected very much because he was the youngest and now suddenly he is the king. Well, he successfully defended Wessex and then all of the Anglo-Saxon areas of England against the marauding Danish Vikings. He was instrumental in converting one of the Danish leaders and his army. He reformed England according to God's word. And that's why Alfred is called today Alfred the Great, because we see greatness in him. He's the only English king in history to be called the great. Coming back to the Bible, we also sense greatness in people who are very different from Daniel and his three friends or from King Josiah because you can say, well, they were born of the nobility. They had special education. Obviously, they were very smart. They had high IQs. Uh, They had a lot going for them before we get to any kind of extraordinary grace. But again, there are people very different from them in the Bible whom we are drawn to in the same way. Think of Naomi and Ruth in the book of Ruth. They were not of the nobility. They were not highly educated. Ruth wasn't even an Israelite. She was one of the hated Moabites. And In addition, it seemed like God's hand was just against them. Ruth was married to Naomi's son, but in very short order, they were living over in Moab. In short order, they both lost their husbands, and they were left destitute. Naomi had some family land back in Israel, but it had many years before been mortgaged and then seized for unpaid debts. And Naomi was old On top of everything else, she was thinking of her daughter-in-law. She told her to stay with her own people because the way she saw herself, she was just an empty husk. She was like chaff that's just going to blow away in the wind. She sees that she has nothing to offer but bad things to her daughter-in-law. But Ruth had come to faith through Naomi And so Ruth tells her against all circumstances and all odds, entreat me not to leave you, nor to turn back from following you. For wherever wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death. Parts you and me. And we see in these completely different circumstances. From Daniel and his three friends. We find Naomi and Ruth. And later Boaz will come into the picture. But we find ourselves drawn to them. We find their story compelling. Because once again. We sense greatness. And we could add Joseph and Mary. A simple carpenter and his betrothed, Mary, who was almost certainly a teenager. I could go on, but you know the story. Shortly, we will be to Advent season this year. and We will be taking up the story. But the point I'm making here is that we're drawn to these very different people because we sense greatness in them. And I bring up all these examples, especially the teenagers, because young people, I want to inspire greatness in you. Is it wrong to seek greatness? We almost think it is as Christians, right? Because we think, well, that sounds kind of like pride or ambition or selfishness, we we seem like we should seek to be humble and so greatness would seem to be off limits and we do know so many counter examples of people even in the world today who seek to be great and turn out horrible. They are blights on humanity. They are tyrants, even either at a small scale or a grand scale. We associate all that with greatness. But the short answer is that no, it is not wrong to seek greatness. In fact, it is right and good to seek greatness as long as it's biblical greatness, biblically sought. And in that regard, Jesus is our ultimate example. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 say this, Let us, talking about us as believers, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we see right from that, talking to every single believer, that we are being called to do great things. We are being called to rise above our circumstances. We are being called to run with endurance a race, hard things that are set before us. And how do we do that? Well, we look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus had faith in a Savior. He was the Savior. He didn't need a Savior. How then is he the author and perfecter of our faith? Because Jesus was the perfect man. He had perfect faith in his Father. He didn't have faith in a Savior. He had faith in his Father, his Father's promises, what his Father called him to do, the path he called him to walk, the great things he called him to do in order himself to be conferred with greatness. Jesus is the ultimate one who has walked this path. And we're told, for the joy that was set before him... He endured the cross, despising the shame, despising the fact that he's hung on the cross and thus is publicly branded like a murderer or an insurrectionist when in truth he has been framed. He despised the shame, but he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him And then he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, which is the joy that was set before them. What was it that the Father set before Jesus? Glory and greatness. Specifically that Jesus would fulfill the vision of Daniel chapter 7. That he would rise from the dead a new glorified human life that no one had ever seen before, but the Father had promised That he would ascend into heaven before the Father, the Ancient of Days, and there receive dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, languages would serve him. That he would be King of Kings, Lord of Lords, rulers of the world. That's what the Father set before Jesus. I would call that ambitious. I don't know what you could have that would be more ambitious than that. But Jesus was ambitious for the right thing in the right way. He sought biblical greatness biblically. Jesus did not seek greatness from man. He sought it from one place, from his father. Jesus asked the religious leaders of his day in John 5, how can you believe In other words, there's a reason why they're not believing in Jesus, and he's pointing that out. How can you believe? Here's the impediment to your belief. You receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from only God. Your main concern is that you be seen as great and popular among your peers, and so you're always looking to, from one another for praise and honor and status. You're not looking to the one who gives true greatness and honor and status, and that is God. Jesus says that this mentality of looking from, for honor and, and greatness sideways from your peer group, he says that is like battery acid to faith. It's corrosive to faith. It is antithetical to faith. Faith must grow in an environment in which honor is ultimately sought from God. This is why Jesus called them hypocrites. You see, we hear the word hypocrites and we think it means someone who says one thing and does another or a person who has one standard for themselves and another standard for everybody else. In truth, those kind of behaviors are the fruit of hypocrisy, but they are not the root of hypocrisy. They are the results of hypocrisy. They are not what hypocrisy is. You see, hypocrisy was a term that came from the ancient Greek theater. And it was something very specific. It was a very technical term. A hypocrite was an actor in the theater who played to the chorus rather than the audience. The Greek plays would have, addition to the actors, would have the chorus. The chorus would chant various things or sing various songs along the play and thus would speak to the audience and give the audience special insight about what was going on on the stage. But they're part of the acting troupe. They're not part of the audience. Well, where is an actor supposed to be seeking and presenting uh, uh, their, their work to the audience? A hypocrite is an actor who's playing over this way to those who are on stage with him or her. Now, an actor who is doing that is not going to act very well because they've mistaken who the audience is. Well, then we need to ask the question, who is the primary audience of life? It is God. First and foremost, we live our lives unto the God who created us and gave His Son to save us. The God who tells us to call Him Father. The God who says to come to Him in prayer, even though He already knows everything we could possibly tell Him, plus much, much more. Jesus says the fact that God already knows everything, that's not a reason for not going to Him That's the reason you go to him. Do you get the picture here? Because the first thing in the prayer that Jesus is going to teach us to pray is the word Father. The reason why we go is because the Father wants us to come. The reason why he wants us to come is because we are his sons and daughters. He already knows everything. He wants to hear it from us. He wants to hear it from your mouth. He wants you to tell him as his son or as his daughter because he is your father. This God, he is the primary audience of life. And so hypocrites are those who live life not unto God primarily but sideways to their peer group, to others that they want to receive praise and honor from. They want praise and honor from one another. That's what Jesus was telling the leadership instead of God the creator and the giver of every good things. Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus said, Hypocrites seek to have glory from men. That's the essence of hypocrisy. They love to be seen by men, he says in verse 5. Now let's be clear. It's not wrong to receive esteem from men as long as it is always secondary. And the primary place that we seek to have approval and honor from is God himself. When Jesus was a lad of 12, so 12-year-olds, 12 I'm talking to you. We're reading about Jesus when he was 12 here. When Jesus was 12 that's when the incident where he remained at the temple when his parents traveled back from the feast, he already knew the scriptures better than all the scholars who were down there at the temple at age 12. But he left, he continued in subjection to his parents, we are told. And then we are told that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. He's learning more and more. He's growing bigger and bigger. And he grew in favor with God and men. So that's not a bad thing. It is not a bad thing to have the favor and the honor and the praise of men as long as it is secondary to honor and praise from God. So that's like extra icing on the cake. We would all love it if we have the approval of God and of others at the same time. That makes life a lot of fun It makes it very easy. But Jesus is going to find something very different when he starts his ministry at age 30. He will quickly lose the favor of men. He will quickly encounter the disfavor of men, the opposition of men, and the most important and powerful men of his society. It will not be long until they are all getting together and saying, He needs to go. He needs to die. And ultimately, they will come together to frame him and put him on the cross. But none of that deterred Jesus. Whether he had the favor of men, whether he did not have the favor of men, whether they wanted to make him king, whether they wanted to kill him, none of that deterred him one way or the other because his audience primarily was his father and his highest ambition was to glorify his father and receive honor from his father and this is the common thread that we find not only with jesus but with every other person in the bible whom we would consider great and we want to read their story we can't put their story down we're fascinated by them we're inspired by them Sometimes we're unnerved by them because of the things they do, the way they rise above their circumstances. But this is the common thread. Their primary audience in everything they do is the God who has created them and saved them. In John chapter 4, in the famous episode with the woman at the well, The disciples go and they bring him food and they come back. And he's talking about water with this woman and so forth. And then the disciples conclude that somebody else must have already brought him food because he was hungry and now we have food and he's not eating. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, if you want to know the primary thing above ordinary food that fuels me and gives me energy and drives me on, it is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to finish his work. You see there that his Father was the primary audience. We also see the effect of of Jesus because his life was locked in his heart and mind were locked in the right kind of way, he was seeking biblical greatness biblically, pursuant to the Father's promise, is that he did not grab glory for himself. It's another difference in his ambition. He trusted the Father, he obeyed the Father, and he waited for the Father to give. He did not grab for himself. Hebrews 5 makes this point in verse 5. Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, it was the Father who said to him, you are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. See how his ambition worked. See how true greatness works. See how greatness lines up in the Bible. The whole way that greatness is pursued is great. Because it's consistent throughout. Notice how Jesus, he was not thrust into the limelight as a teenager. He had a brief moment in the limelight at age 12 when the scholars realized he knew the scriptures better than they did. But quickly, he subjected himself to his parents, he went home with his parents. Jesus had to wait till age 30 to enter into his ministry until age 30. At 12, he has more knowledge than the scholars. He does nothing in terms of formal ministry for another 18 years. He's a carpenter, like his adoptive father. We would say, what a waste. It's not a waste. God doesn't waste. You see, Jesus' greatness is seen just as much in the fact that he remains subject to his parents, sinners both, as the sinless Son of God. It was not above his greatness to do this, because it was the Father's perfect providence. So he carried that out until the right time, till age thirty. Jesus shows us how to seek. Biblical greatness, biblically. But what exactly is biblical greatness? It is the presence of God's glory in a person's life. The presence of God's glory in a person's life. We recognize that greatness when we begin to see glimpses of this glory. And as we see glimpses of God's glory in a person, we start to recognize this is not, they are a normal person in the sense that they are a ful, fully human person like the rest of us, and yet we see stuff in here. We see stuff in them that's not normal. We see them carried on. We see core of conviction. We see them doing things that are difficult. We don't see them floating along like chaff in the wind. They're not floating along with everybody. We see them making stands. They're not. They're not obnoxious people. They're not seeking to be contrary to others. They're not seeking to get attention. We just see them standing in different ways. They have a substance to them that most people don't have. We see the glory of God peeking out in their life in various ways. You have to remember that the Hebrew word from glory comes from a word that literally means weightiness. Psalm 2, verse 19, Blessed be His, God's glorious, His weighty name forever. Blessed be His weighty name forever. His glorious name. Let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Let the whole earth be filled with His weightiness. And this gives us the real meaning behind the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which we immediately simply associate with not cursing or swearing. It means, sure it includes that. It means so much more than that, folks. Because the word take, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God, literally means to carry or bear. You shall not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. And what does vain mean? It means lightly. As God's people, we bear his name. His name is placed on us in baptism. We are called to live up to that name, to live out that name, to live consistently with that name. We carry God's name with us wherever we go. And God's name in the Old Testament is very closely associated with His presence. We bear His name, and as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6, we carry His presence within us. And so the third commandment is saying, you shall not carry or bear the name of the Lord your God lightly as though it is of little consequence. You shall carry it and bear it as it is in truth. It is weighty. It is weighty, not like a burden weighty, but it is heavy in the sense that it shapes you. It changes everything. That's what the third commandment means. You see how much broader that commandment is? We are. We bear the name of God. We shall be shaped by the name of God. That's how the glory of God begins to peek out from us because we bear his name and we do not do so lightly. It shapes who we are, it shapes what we do. That is what makes all these different people we've cited in the Bible do things that are, we don't expect them to do. That's what makes them rise above their circumstances. That's what makes them stand when no one else stands. That's what gives them substance and weightiness like the kernel of wheat opposed to the chaff. The chaff has profile. Chaff has profile and size. What it doesn't have any of is any weightiness, no substance. And so it floats along in the wind wherever it goes. The kernel of wheat may actually be smaller in terms of simple profile, but it has substance. It has weight. It has God's glory, and therefore it is heavy, and it does not get blown away with the wind. It comes safely to God's harvest floor. So this was the issue for Daniel and his friends. What was going to shape them? Were they going to bear the name of the Lord lightly? Or were they going to bear it as it was in fact, the weightiest thing in the world and let it shape them? In Daniel chapter 9, we have a great prayer by Daniel and we see how much his prayer is shaped by the word of God. It is shaped by the weightiness of God. In this prayer, he is seeking first the kingdom of God. Of God. And one of the things that he prays from his heart over and over is, Oh Lord, have mercy on your people. Forgive your people because you have promised to carry forward your kingdom. And to do that, you've promised to redeem. And to do that, you have to forgive. And so he says, Forgive according to your righteousness because to be righteous, you have to keep your promises. And then he says this, forgive your people, O Lord, because they bear your name. And so for Daniel and his three friends, the question is, are they going to keep the third commandments? How are they going to bear the name of the Lord? What is going to shape them? The glory and weightiness of God's name, which they bear, or the new names which were assigned to them? By the Babylonian regime. You see all of their original names in Hebrew. Gave glory to the one true and living God. But all of their names were changed. To give glory to the false gods. The demon gods of the Babylonians. Which were claimed to be the power. Behind Nebuchadnezzar and his empire. And in the fallenness of that empire. They certainly were the powers behind it, but God is going to change all that because this is what his kingdom's going to do as it goes throughout the earth. It is going to take the kingdoms and fallen man and show them they look like gold and silver. They're actually fool's gold and they're not even fool's gold. They're really chaff. Watch, watch as they blow away in the wind, watch how there's no substance at all there. While the kingdom of God, which begins like an unshaped stone, nothing in him that we should esteem him, Jesus Christ, an unshaped stone, this stone is heavy. It's not blowing anywhere in the wind. It grows. It fills the earth as a mountain. While the kingdoms of fallen man blow away in the wind. It's the same thing at the individual level. We see this in Psalm 1. This is part of the gateway, the doorway into all the other psalms. It's a contrast between those who blow away like the chaff because they may have profile, but they don't have any substance. There's no weightiness there. There's no glory there. There's no greatness there because they're not properly related to the living God. That's the chaff blowing away in the wind in contrast to the one who is like a tree rooted by the rivers of water that bears its fruit in season and out. Who is that one? That's the one who meditates constantly on the word of God, who sees all of life through the lens of God's word and will and wisdom and ways and wonders and who lives accordingly. That's the one who does not blow away in the wind. So you see, God is working the same thing with individuals, as he is with nations and kingdoms over time. Daniel and his three friends, they got all that. They got it. And they said, this is a privilege for all eternity to be part of this kingdom project, which the God, the living God is doing in the world. Yes, there will be hardships. Yes, there will be hard things to do. Yes, there will be hard things to bear. Daniel is thrown in the lion den. His three friends are thrown into the fiery furnace. They regularly face death. They regularly faced jealous and envious uh, people who were blowing along with the wind. Consider the fact that Daniel and his three friends, they were not the only Israelites who were brought here to be trained to serve Nebuchadnezzar. There were other Israelites as well. But Daniel and his three friends were the only ones who really got it. So they had fellow Israelites who were going to become their enemies, who were going to become resentful of them because they're not standing the same way. They're not walking the same way. They don't have the same substance. They don't have the same glory. They don't have the same greatness of God built within them. That's what the whole thing is about right off the bat when Daniel and his friends decide they don't want to eat the food of the king. They want, and they literally, it says vegetables in your text, but it literally means seeds. They want seeds. You see, this is hearkening back to to Genesis where the first foods that Adam and Eve eat are foods with seeds. It's fruit-bearing trees and things like that, the most simplest of foods. What it means, and it's not related to clean and unclean. It's not related to Levitical laws and, and dietary codes for priests. Daniel and his friends were not from the tribe of Levi. They were from the tribe of Judah. This has to do with they realize that God is making a new beginning because he's going to be bringing his kingdom into the world. And this is the ramp up. And they're called to be part. And they're acknowledging that. We're not, they're not going to be part of the table of the fellowship of the king. They will serve the king in an extraordinary manner as long as it is consistent with the will of the living God and the advancement of his kingdom. And as a result of their testimony, their substance, their weightiness, it will lead to the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. So they were under tremendous pressure to conform to the paganism of Babylon, but they did not do so. They stood, and that was because of the word of God within them. That is what shaped their prayers. That is what shaped their actions. That is why we look at them and we are compelled to read because it was greatness, the greatness of God in them. We see so many similarities to today. Now, so many things are different. They lived so many years ago. We have so many technological advancements today. But the nature of fallen man does not change. And whenever man wants to worship himself and exalt his own throne, whenever a fallen man wants to play God, there's a couple of moves that he always makes we doing it in Nebuchadnezzar's day. it will be doing it in the times of the Roman Empire when Jesus came and the apostles lived. It's happening still today. There's always a double move. In the public square, there is, there is a denial of all truth of God. The Word of God must be driven out. The Word of man must be exalted. But you see, when you have no truth then you will have arbitrary absolute truth being brought by the central powers into the public square. At the same time, you will have radical individualism in order to keep people distracted and occupied. You will have absolute arbitrary truth being spoken into the public square coming from Caesar, as it were, And at the same time, individuals will be told, there is no truth. Make up your own truth. Make up your own reality, and people will pathetically seek to entertain themselves and to cobble together some kind of fragile sense of self-worth as they ever remake their own private realities. Does any of this sound familiar to you? This is exactly the same thing that is going on in our day. Young people, you face the same issue as Daniel and his friends. You have the same calling. God is calling you to be great, but He's calling you to be biblically great and to seek it in a biblical way. Over and over in His Word, He shows you how to do this. And I'm calling you to see what a privilege it is. Don't let this go by, be great.